Okay, so uh, at the ARC seminar, we were asked to speak on the subtitle there, What We're Attempting at Grace Christian Fellowship Dayton to Reach the Lost, Share the Gospel, and Make Disciples, and the concepts that we have behind them, which are uh, very biblical but very different for our time period in, in many respects. So uh, we're going to, uh, I assume most of us know a good bit about what we're trying to do at the school and at Wright State. Uh, we're hoping this summer to have a flyer campaign in uh, the neighborhoods around here that will be more designed toward families and uh, married couples and grown-ups and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we uh, will be uh, having uh, the summer reading program. There will be p people here studying hopefully just about every day this summer, wor working around their work schedules. And we're going to teach uh, the series again called Operation Reconciliation, which is 12 parts on how to lead people to Christ and lead them through the five steps of entering the kingdom of God and so forth. So I assume most of everyone knows that. So what I wanted to do is chapter two of, of the, uh, I, the outline that I gave them was seven critical concepts of all GCF outreaches. And uh, all seven of these need to be working at the same time if we're really going to restore what the, the, is the biblical uh, church model uh, that uh, our, our way of doing Christianity today, in, both in Protestant and Catholic, has, has kind of left most of these things. And many of our ideas are more traditions that, that have developed that are extra biblical. You know, tradition's a good thing in the Bible as long as it's a biblical tradition. Uh, but uh, a lot of our ideas today are really marketing ideas and so forth. So it's always good to go back to the source, the scriptures, and see what we can do. Um, you should have a second uh, handout that says supplement number one, some favorite outreach scriptures. Before I get into the seven, uh, flip over and look at 1 Thessalonians about halfway down the second page. And I wanted to just read, uh, if, if you get a chance, uh, or make, make yourself get a chance to read all of 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, in light of what should be the lifestyle of a body of Christians in terms of our ministry to each other. Hopefully we all have it firmly in our mind that our first ministry is to God. Jason just uh, covered this at the Rock Campus Fellowship again this past Tuesday. Our first ministry is to God, period. We were called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our, our singing, our worship, our obedience, our embracing the crosses he puts us in our life. Um, you know, what we want to, by the grace of God and through the supernatural power of Christ's resurrection, we want to be the opposite of what God experienced just before the flood of Noah. The Lord looked down from heaven, and the wickedness and violence of man was so great that it actually says he was grieved that he made man. Now, I, you don't have to know a, a whole lot about the world situation today to know that the church is the only uh, place where possibly God can look down and say, wow, it was all worth it. You know, I died for these people. I came to... to for a bride and so forth. You know, we, we tend to think in terms of how things affect us. And that's, of course, means we haven't gone very far yet with the Lord. When, as you progress in the, in the Lord, in 1 John chapter 2, he writes to three stages of spiritual growth. He says, I write to you, children. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and overcome the evil one. I write to you, fathers, because you know, but that's a no uh, in the sense of uh, the word that's used for sexual union, for intimacy. Uh, your, your heart is one with the Father, and you see and feel things from the Father's perspective, not from man's perspective. That's what it means to be spiritually mature. And God searches to and fro throughout the earth to find a heart perfect for him, toward him, the Scripture says. Jesus said that the Father's... It is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth and the father seeks those who worship him that way 
So what we, the first thing we all want to always cry out to God for, Lord, make me a lover of God. Help me love what you love, hate what you hate, care for who you care for, value what you value, and help me live life from an eternal perspective of the throne of God uh, as to as to what your concerns are in the earth. So that Jesus would actually be able to say over us, as he said at the Passover supper, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. What fears me, causes me the most fear in the, in the, in the, my bones today in, in today's world is that God said concerning his friend Abraham, a person that God called his friend, called David a man after his own heart, called Abraham his friend. And he said, shall I do these things in the earth without telling my friend Abraham? When you consider the expectations in terms of eschatology in the church and in the earth today, and almost 95% of people hold to very unbiblical eschatologies that don't understand what God is about to do in the earth. And frankly, it affects our long, our strategy. So the first ministry is be a lover of God. Second, of course, is that we behold we need to love one another. Uh, we talked at Rock Campus Fellowship this Tuesday about how some some uh, friendships and fellowship it started to to uh, emerge. In First Thessalonians four, Paul says to the Thessalonians. He, he's writing about uh, loving one another, and he says, you are taught by God how to love one another. And he even says, and you're doing that. But then he says, I urge you to excel still more. Is every uh, person who walks through our doors, are they cared for? Are they served? If, if, especially those who are of the family in the sense that they come regularly uh, they show in signs that, that they've been born again and converted to Christ and so forth. Are we reaching out to them and finding a way to connect with them? I, I shouldn't brag on different people, but, <clears throat> uh, you know, one of the things that has really kind of made me happy lately is uh, two, two guys sitting there, Terry and, and Kent, uh, they go running together. Now, I'm not really willing to join them at 5 a.m. on Tuesday mornings after I've had Terry out at a Bible study until 11.30, but, but, uh, but I'm glad they're doing that, and uh, I'd encourage you all to excel still more. Find someone to run with, play cards with, go for a walk, share your heart. Uh, if, if you're struggling in school, find someone who's really good at school to tutor you. We have lots of people who are, are really bright people who could tutor you in math or whatever. You know, serve one another. That's our second ministry. But our third ministry is that we're living in a world where, frankly, uh, I, I didn't include it, but I had an appendix, a second appendix, and a third one in the in the uh, notebooks. And uh, the one was about uh, kind of today's culture. And uh, you know, one of the lines I said in it is uh, stolen from an old Bob Dylan album in his. Uh, when he would, after he left his Christian phase back to and converted back to Judaism, he wrote a uh, an album called "Ring Them Bells" or something like that. And, and uh, one of the lines was, "Everything is broken." And uh, boy, if he could say that 25 or 30 years ago, almost everyone that we that we meet is broken in very significant ways. That's part of our human sin condition. The fall of man caused us to have the imago Dei, the image of God that we were born with, all aspects of that have been marred. It's not just fleshly habits, but it's our, our mind, our spirit, the way we relate to people, our, our goals, our, our affections, what we love and don't love. And all these, everything is broken and everyone we uh, encounter is broken. And so, you know, we need to press in to Christ to become his wholeness, because you can only give away what you have. I can't say, you know, I know you need a house. Uh, I know you need some place to stay. Let me give you John and Leah Gray's house. <laughs> I can't do that, right? Uh, you can only give away what you possess, right? So uh, as we press into Christ, uh, we have more to give. Every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. 
the Pharisees were rebuked by Jesus. They had the robes, they had vestments, they had liturgy, they had all kinds of religious accoutrements about them, even degrees from schools. But he said, when you, when you travel here and there to make one convert or proselyte, you turn them into twice as much of a son of hell as you are. Whatever you really have in Christ is not really that noticeable by whether or not you have lousy taste, pl cheap plastic stained glass windows. It's more about what you have in terms of your lifestyle and character and spirit together, right? So our third ministry is to those outside. And along that line, I'm going to read one verse, then I'll segue into these seven principles, which you're going to get to hear at both meetings today, because I'm uh, taking the 1030. So in 1 Thessalonians 7, on just some highlights in verse 8, we were ready to share with you. Not only the gospel of God, but also our own suke is the Greek. Our souls, our lives. Now, you, one of the ways you spell that in, in, in real life is T-I-M-E. If you want to show love to a kid, love is spelled T-I-M-E. Um, sharing your heart. Talking about the, your relationship with God. Uh, inviting them into your home. Not, I remember uh, when we first started doing inner city stuff, actually before we even started this church a couple of years back, we had some really troubled guys in our house and I was having a Bible study with them. And, you know, they, uh, you know, First Peter 4, he says, be hospitable without complaint. And uh, after they left, I found out that the guy went to the restroom and he clogged up the whole toilet so much that it flooded all over the floor. But he was embarrassed to say something, so he got out of there. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and uh, I had to uh, say, Lord, <laughs> help me. I'm uh, I'm wanting to complain here, Lord. But uh, your word says to be hospitable without complaint. So you know, uh, I love that verse. I, it, it's sacred ground. Like, did did you invest the time in in this one or that one? And uh, you know what? No pastor can do that. Even Jesus had three that he invested the most time in. And then there were nine more that made up to 12. And then there, he sent out 70 others in Luke 10 and based on Acts 1 and other. There, there probably were about 120 or 150 people, some of whom could only follow around when they were up in Galilee, but they had other things to attend to whenever he went down to Judea. Probably others joined them in, when they were in Judea area. But, you know, uh, a pastor has to multiply pastors. The reason I have certain people that go to the Bible studies with me is so that we can multiply the number of people who can do those Bible studies and care for people and, and bring them along in the things of the Lord. He goes on to say uh, in this same passage, um, one of the things I like, to, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men for what it really is, the word of God, listen to this, which also performs its work in you who believe. The word of God works in people. People wonder why I quote so many scriptures when I'm talking to people, why I spent so many years memorizing hundreds and hundreds of scriptures. Because you, you know what? You don't really want my opinion. My opinion and, and uh, $2 will buy you a coffee with no, a plain coffee at Starbucks. You can get that without my opinion as well, as long as you have the $2. So one of the reasons we need to, to know the scriptures is because every... You know, Moses prophesied that I would that all God's people are prophets. If you're born again and baptized in the Holy Spirit, God's intention is that you speak as a prophet. Peter said, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the mouthpiece of God. Are the opinions you have, that's why I go a little crazy about all the crazy things I see on Facebook and stuff like that. Like, are the opinions you have, are you speaking what Jesus would have you to be speaking in the time, circumstance, attitude, and motivation that he is. Anything, le anything less than that is sin. So, 
Uh, I love, look up Romans 10. I love the fact that the word of God is what does the work. How can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless they're sent? You know, a lot of Christians, there's a big fight in Christian circles. If you read the books and the articles about whether we should do what we, friendship or lifestyle evangelism, where we live our lives in such a godly way that they ask us, wow, why do you have it so together, Edwin? And, uh, and then Edwin tells them all about Jesus, right? That's called friendship or lifestyle evangelism. And it does happen. If people call you and go, well, I was in trouble and I thought of you. And it's partly because they saw the spirit and motivation, the attitude, they saw the lifestyle you had. But, uh, you know, I knew a group of Christians that were really big on that. And so they had, they had done what we did even more so. They had clustered to the point where on this one call to Zach, they had like five different leaders live in from the, and so forth. And they all went to great extremes to have their house look nice and their yard look nice. And the, and the one pastor said, no matter how much we work at it, the two gay guys at the end of the call to Zach have a nicer house and better lawn than we do. <laughs> so, you know, there's some limitations to lifestyle and friendship evangelism. Um, many Buddhists, because of their theology, live more disciplined lives than most Christians. And it sort of makes sense if you understand their religion and their worldview. So uh, the other, the Bible also speaks in favor of what's called proclamation evangelism. What we're going to focus on this summer with whoever stays for the summer is re recording lots of messages that we can use, getting lots of materials we can use, but teaching us how to go out in teams of two and share the gospel, at, at least to start with, at the tables at Wright State. But my hope is by the time we're, by the time this little building is starting to get crowded, I'm hoping we can get to maybe where we're breaking even financially. And if we are, uh, eventually someday I want to have a van, like a big old party van from, you know, from the 70s. And, uh, um, you know, have it like speakers on it and uh, have a receiver and have a cordless mic and uh, all kinds of racks of literature and CDs loaded in it. So, you, And I, I want to be able to go just like go to a park, pull up and preach the gospel. Not like the quad gods, or at least not their message. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, I uh, think, you know, uh, Ken texted me and said the quad gods are here one day, but unfortunately I was in my study working with I still haven't got to hear them, but I'm assuming they're like they used to be in the 70s and 80s, but uh, we'll see. Anyway, so let's get into this. The first thing is actually covered by the first three verses on your supplemental scripture list, and but the first point on your chapter two outline is that fishing is following Jesus. Now, hopefully we've heard this enough here to understand that if you're not involved, you know, I thank God for every volunteer at Kids Rock, at Rock Campus Fellowship, that, you know, just being here early and on time and coming to both meetings, uh, like obviously the people here do, <laughs> since you're at the first meeting, even that is part of fishing. Because the truth of the matter is it's called the warm body principle. When you come in here and there's eight people, it's easy to assume, boy, this is just like an Half of the people are from one family. These people are just, you know, from Appalachia or something. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I, should, I probably have probably get that one out of the CD somehow, Jordan. But you know that I'm saying that's what they're thinking, <laughs> you know, or whatever. That there there's some kind of dysfunction or something. You know, the as we grow, people have to say, "Hey, there's 30 people here. Hopefully, someday 50, 70 people here." Now, I don't want to trust in 2,000 people being here or anything like that. Frankly, when we start pushing 100 people, I'm hoping we have enough shepherds and leaders and so forth to start a second church. Uh, and when we start pushing 100 people or 125 the second time through, uh, I'm hoping we'll start a third church. I can't wait to send the teams and launch the websites for gcfzenia.org. That'll have outreaches to uh, Central State University, Wilberforce, and uh, Cedarville University. Can you imagine a, a church that has a campus ministry at Cedarville and Central State? Awesome. <laughs> that, 
uh, that I think I'm going to move to Xenia. But uh, you better be prepared to take over in case Xenia gets too tempting for me. But uh, <laughs> and, and we can do the same thing at Ohio State. If you know where Upper Arlington is in Ohio State and in the inner city neighborhoods, they're all together at one place, even more so than we have right here in Dayton. We can do the kids, the inner city thing, the kids rock, the university ministry, and build a community at the same place. So have enough faith in God to see yourself leading worship for that, doing counseling, uh, being part of the casting out demons deliverance team and, and knowing all three of the major uh, perspectives that have been, at least in Western Christianity, about counseling and so forth. And start paying the price every day to get there. Read the right books, study the right scripture. Have If you don't have a scripture memory program, you're shooting your ministry in the foot. Fishing is following. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. If you if you are not in, you know what fishermen do? In fact, we, we passed one of those places on our trip. Uh, you know, they're, and it was like huge. It was, yeah, Bass Pro Shops, that's it, thank you. And I was like, wow, it was like, what a temple. I mean, it was like this worship shrine, and they had built it for longevity more so than they do churches nowadays, and, and it had great signage, and the parking lot was full, and people were praying, and uh, Lord, give me more fish, and uh, <laughs> you know, help me afford this one rod that I need. Give me a better job so I can buy a better boat. You know, people who want to fish invest in fishing. They have the fishing magazines, and they uh, read the fishing websites. Really, if you really are seeing things from God's perspective, do you know that our first reason for evangelism is not, and it's total sin and codependency, if, if this is, is your first reason, it's not our compassion for the lost. That grows out of our first reason is our love of God, and he commands it. And it's out of his compassion for the lost. And it's out of his eternal plan. And it's not for him all about being lost. It's also about his getting a bride for his son. He's got, and it's about manifesting his glory through all the earth. He's got lots of other reasons why he does it. But our reason is our love for him and love uh, to God, love to, to children and to one another is T-I-M-E. Love to God is spelled O-B-E-Y and S-E-R-V-E, right? So the first principle I think we're, we're probably well grounded in. The, the only thing else I want to say is if you read Luke's account that I've listed there, Mark and Matthew, they're all um, sp spelled out for you at the top of your supplement. One of the things you need to spend some time thinking before God about is that they all involved leaving, cleaving to God and to Christ. You know that leaving and cleaving isn't about marriage. For this man, uh, cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, but it's about the fact that marriage is a, is a covenant between God and a man and a woman. If you want to see any marriage that gets in trouble, it's because the covenant with God was not right. And the first thing that has to that you have to work on is a real relationship with God that presses past religious unrealities into real realities of loving God. And that's our only hope in life. And you know, you see, they immediately left their nets, their their parents, etc. Now, the, it's interesting that uh, depending on which of the writers you're. Uh, Luke emphasizes that they left their fathers and so forth, the others, their boats and nets, because it was all one. You grew up in Israelite society. Uh, one, one slight mistake the conference speaker had is he talked about how they were probably uneducated men. Not so. Uh, they were Galileans. They grew up in Capernaum near Nazareth, where they probably knew Jesus from the trips uh, annually to the feast for Jerusalem. And every young man was raised to memorize at least the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch by age 12. However, 
if you wanted to be chosen by the better rabbis, you needed to memorize uh, significant portions and even in some cases all of the rest of the, the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament. Now that's something that's not well known, but it's well documented. And uh, the truth is, these guys were guys that were passed over by the top rabbis. But that didn't mean that they didn't know the Bible a whole lot better than most people today. Oh, they did. But they, they didn't know the Bible well enough to, have, to be drafted, you know, like the NBA draft. That's how it kind of, the rabbis drafted who they wanted in the top prospects of young men that knew the whole Old Testament is who they wanted. So Jesus, the rabbi, comes along and he drafts them because he's well aware of what God said to Samuel about David, that God doesn't look on outward things, he looks on the heart, and they, they were the guys he wanted. So uh, the, the, the leaving part, I, this is what I fear for today. One of the reasons most people don't grow up in the Lord to any kind of a mature manifestation of Christ, even over quite a bit of time sometimes, is sometimes we're not doing enough leaving. You know what? You have to do whatever it takes to get rid of in, uh, friendships or, or uh, soul ties with your parents or anything that's causing you to compromise walking in the power of the obedient spirit of Christ. If Satan has any hooks in you, if you can't say like Jesus said, Satan comes, the ruler of this world comes, but he has nothing in me, then he'll just take you down whenever he wants. He'll even allow you to have the appearance of doing pretty well spiritually for a week or two or here or there. But when, when the push comes to shove, when the body of Christians that you're a part of starts breaking through and having some break, so forth, you'll find yourself, you know, eating dust again in the in the whatever your favorite sin or or uh, compromised area was. You have to leave, you know. What it takes, I'm, I'm, as you know, a lot of I'm very uh, proud of uh, and praying for and holding. You know, uh, Caleb, uh, we've mentioned him a bunch of times, but he really kind of needed to go someplace where he could just be with God in a in a program for you know. Kent went through a series. You might need to do that. What it, you, but you do need whatever whatever is holding you back. You need a realistic plan to escalate to victory. That's the leaving part. You know, if you have significant problems, you're, you're not going to overcome it by, okay, I'm going to increase my Bible reading from five minutes a week to 20. <laughs> That's not going to get you there. You know, I, as you can see, I'm not exactly the height of a, a physical specimen here. And I've cut down going to uh, Pisanello's Pizza from... Uh, once a week to a couple times a year, but it's, <laughs> but I haven't escalated enough to win. You know what I'm saying? I'm just playing. But all right. So number two point: going before we're ready. I have to. I ha, uh, and by the way, I kind of have a little. The first one I put a community of disciples. So we have to become a community of disciples, and we need everyone to become a disciple. In the way Jesus said, you know, John 8, Jesus said, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he says, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, then you are truly my disciple. So if you know how to read the reverse negative, he's saying, if you don't abide in my word and my word doesn't abide in you, then you're not truly my disciple. Lots of people go to church all the time that would don't spend any time alone in the in the scriptures. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills God's heart, and the church taught from the first century on that Jesus is the living word, and the primary place you can find him is in the written word. Now, I believe you find him in the body of Christ. That's why we disciple one another as a community. Of course, the Holy Spirit came to bear witness of him. We find him in the covenant meal of communion, of Eucharist, and, and so forth. But the primary place you find him is in the written word of God. And if you're not going to eat his flesh in that way, 
then you start making eating his flesh in this way somewhat of an empty ritual. So, uh, that was a community of disciples. I went back to this uh, missional community. Jesus started sending people before they're ready. This was probably the biggest mistake I made in Grace Christian Fellowship history. There were lots of things like the fact that, you know, my business required 60 or 70 hours a week in the early years. I was still raising kids that were still in Christian schools and getting them through college. And John was even gone a couple years. Uh, Jason was gone, unfortunately, to me, not to him. He needed the college degree, but uh, I'm glad they went now that they're back and it's done. But, you know, Jason was gone for four years in the early years and uh, so forth. But uh, there were lots of lots of reasons we struggled. Uh, but probably the primary reason is because we were really working with really troubled and broken people. I had grown up in a ritzy suburb, and, and I had primarily started churches among college students and so forth, and, and I, it took me a while to get my mind around how more, much more troubled even the college students are today. So I kind of was like, well, if we could just plead with them to get to a certain level of breaking their addictions and walking holy and knowing the word and being in love with God, then we'll have health, enough health to start reaching out. You know what? Jesus sent them out when they weren't that healthy yet. That's why we decided, you know, we have, now we don't have uh, the, the, we, the, the worship leader or the whiz kids leader or, you know, being, being uh, someone who's still one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord and all that kind of stuff. But we have lots of volunteers that are, and that's okay. Because here's what happens when you start to love lost people and, 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 and you begin to experience God's, the Father's broken heart for people and things like that, you'll experience the verse that Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer. In John 17, he says, Father, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Now, I hope you have this motivation. I hope I'm not talking to anything new to anyone, but if I am, by God's, all, you know, get up here after, during the prayer afterwards and get prayed for, but get on your face to get prayed for if this isn't part of how you, you're motivated. I regularly get tempted to sin as everyone does. And I say, I can't. Because in two days we have Kids Rock or Rock Campus Fellowship or... Uh, we're only three days away from Friday night fellowship. I can't afford to lust or take, you know, go to the wrong website or uh, get drunk or, or whatever you might have you. Uh, if I start fellowshipping kind of arrogant thoughts and stuff, I have, I cry out to God, help me humble myself because, because Kent is, is depending on me Friday night. I really do. I, I think like that all the time. I pray to God you would think like that. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. In other words, if I have these, if I haven't, if I have sins of commission or sins of omission, and I think some of us get to a place where our sins of commission are pretty well in good stead, but our sins of omission include our seeking God, our, our study of his word, our fasting, our, our spending time alone in worship. And I, you know, I say to myself, I can't afford to skip my, I can't afford to have sins of omission. I've got to have some time with God because I've got to refill and recharge because otherwise I'm, you know, uh, I'll be spending time with John Gray and, and I'll say what will come out of me is uh, I got these stale bologna sandwiches from three weeks ago. <laughs> and then John Gray will say, no, thank you. That's <laughs> That's why I bring my own food. <laughs> you know, I knew you were going to pull that white bread, you know, bologna sandwiches thing on me again. Does that make sense? That, of course, that's a metaphor. I haven't eaten bologna since I was a little kid, but uh, my family was very poor. We had bologna. Um, some people like bologna, actually, if you're Italian or whatever. Um, does everyone get that? <laughs> No, that not. the going before we're ready part. Uh, going before you're ready, hopefully, 
you know, the psalmist said, David, David said at one point, Lord, let not my people be ashamed through me. See, if you're going to mentor some kid, he's going to become how you are. If you're going to be a natural father, your kids are going to turn out like you. So the number one way you can love your kids is to press into God and let Christ make you into who he wants you to be. Because every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. Read, watch the movie The In-Laws when the Jewish guy in the chair full, with his mouth full of stuff goes, call off the wedding. because <laughs> He's saying that you know he, uh, Peter Falk is, uh, is telling this, uh, or the dentist is telling him, we haven't even met the father-in-law yet. And the guy says, call off the wedding. And he goes, call off the wedding. It's two days from now. We got caters or the, He goes, you haven't met the father of the bride? Call off the wedding. Because the acorn does not fall far from the tree. I understood this principle so much that I was 90 to 95% sold on Emily and met her once or twice. John had been talking to her. But when her parents came to dinner one night, they found out by the end of the dinner what a, what a knucklehead I am. Because they're about to leave, and I'm, I'm like, start crying. I'm like Abraham in Genesis 24. Oh, God has provided a godly, wonderful, virtuous, loving, knowledgeable, wise wife for my son. And that they, you know, I just met them. And it's like the, again, the seeing it in the in-laws. Like you go, Peter Fox starts crying and stuff when they first meet. I'm like crying, and uh, fortunately, they're wonderful Christian people, and they, they, I think they kind of said, okay, he's a little strange, but he's love, he's okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm crying because now I, I, I always, it, it, Emily had so much godliness going about her that I almost thought it was too good to be true. But when I met her parents, I realized why it was not too good to be true. Does that make sense? Now, that doesn't mean that Aunt Emily didn't have to own it and didn't have to become her walk with God. And, of course, we all know that, I hope. God doesn't have any grandchildren, just children. But does everyone get that? By the way, I'm planning to take it however long it takes to get these principles. So I'm developing number two a lot. But I, I'm so far in number two, I'm really focusing on the point. Let not his people be ashamed through me. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. If you really care about the Wiz Kids ministry, press into whatever is holding you back. And too much time on the internet, uh, not, develop, not enough time seeking the Lord and reading his word. Whatever you become in Christ is who you'll impart okay who you are spiritually is the most contagious thing in the world even when you're a pothead i i'm sorry sorry to say but in my atheist agnostic uh, i didn't i could never make up my mind if i was atheist or agnostic but i was a cultist pothead p and i was trying to convert people to that <laughs> you are an evangelist whether you know it or not and your very presence uh, imparts power. Does that make sense? Now, with that, uh, servant leadership, a serving community. Uh, the reason I joined the ARC is, is because the leaders of it uh, were the most modeled humility and servant leadership the most of any Christian leaders. We have this kind of braggadocious thing about Christian leadership today. And, you know, I, I had a wonderful talk with Ned Berube for about 30 minutes at the first time I went to Mansfield. And I found out later that day that he was the president of the ARC. He never brought that up. We just had a good fellowship for a while. I had a conflict with Rick Widener, one of the director of missions, and most of you know him. And I said, Rick, you know, some things you said hurt my feelings. I really got to, according to Matthew 6 and 18, talk, talk this through with you. How about if I call you this week? And he said, no. He said, if, you, if I've hurt your feelings and we need to talk some things through, I'll, I'll drive down to date and you just tell me what day. And I'll, I'll take you out to lunch and I'll buy. And, uh, and I'll serve you and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it and we'll, get it, we'll work it through. And I apologize in advance for anything I might have said 
and he did. He came to Dayton, and we talked for a whole day, and he became a big part of our growing up elders and other things like that. Um, everyone needs to become a servant. The best thing I can do for you when you come to the Lord, besides get you reading your Bible and loving to worship and so forth, is to put you on the lawn mowing team. <laughs> and Sydney says, Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sign him up for the lawn mowing team. Sydney was the lawn mowing team for like the first seven years around here or something, or five or something. Uh, he used to go to sleep and he was dreaming about mowing the lawn. So uh, Jesus did project-based learning. That's what they called it at Newmont University. <laughs> project-based le learning. Is, and they actually said, this is this new idea we've come up with. And I didn't want to be too obnoxious, so I didn't raise my hand and go, well, it's actually in the Gospels. And uh, the first example of it that we know of in, in written history is Moses and Joshua. <laughs> you know, I decided not to go there. But... Um, Moses and Joshua was the first project-based learning. Then Elijah and Elisha and so forth. So uh, in Acts 1, point 2C in your outline there, think about this. In Acts 1, 6, 7, they say to Jesus, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? It's like they went to a Hal Lindsey seminar or had read, uh, you know, those Left Behind books or something. Because in, at the time Jesus came, the expectations of the religious community, like in our day, was that, the only w that it's a really wicked world, and it's run by, this, by totalitarian states, and in fact, one particular state, Rome. They were aware that there was a Chinese empire, and that was very status and so forth. They knew some of that, but... And so the only hope for the kingdom of God to begin to break through and emerge is, the, is God coming, sending the Messiah, and they were expecting a political military Messiah who in one moment, like an angel wiping out the city of Jerusalem of the sword, would just kick out all the Romans, reestablish David's geopolitical kingdom, and Israel would be the political king. And Jesus wanted the kind of kingdom where the greatest is a servant. And so that wouldn't do. Jesus had, had instituted, when he, in John 1, it explains that he's the creator, among other places. He had instituted already seven institutions. The, the self-government of a Christian man or woman, the family, the church. And those three of the seven were the foundations to bring the kingdom from the inside out, from the bottom up, restoring the, the church. Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, Matthew 16. What he means is in contradistinction to the one Moses built. Moses had a called out assembly, and I'm leaving them behind now because they have kept pursuing it like it could be done from some geopolitical external thing. If we just vote for the right people, get the right people in office, that won't change anybody's hearts. You want to know, you want to know a great example of that? Ever since the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society in 64, the civil rights movement from... Uh, 59 to 67 or 8, we really have on the, law, on the books more equality than we've ever had on the laws. And we have forced integrated post offices, schools, everything. But on Sunday mornings when people have a choice, it's the most segregated hour in America. And there is more prejudice between blacks and whites and whites and blacks than ever before in this country. And uh, there is more reverse prejudice from blacks towards whites than ever before. And the laws can't change human hearts. You know what changes human hearts? If we, the church, can build interracially in such a way that we 
go to the same home groups, the same campus ministries, worship teams, whatever. Uh, one of the reasons I invest so much in some of the African-American young men and so forth is I want some of our top leaders to become African-Americans based on their character and calling, not at all based on some quota that we're trying to get. But because we just say, well, this brother is the wisest brother we got. And if you really want to know what it's like to grow up in Christ, go to his house, <laughs> hang out for a while. Sir, do you get that? So that's why we got to go before we're ready. Um, you'll, you'll actually, you won't grow into the things God's called you to do until, you know, my, my mom used to use me to help her to cast out demons when I was 17. And I'd been a Christian, I'd been off marijuana like a few weeks. And I'd gone through one or two deliverance sessions myself. And then I read a bunch of the Derek Prince's books on the subject and, and pigs in the parlor and so forth. And then I started helping. That's do that. Walk enough in the spirit that you're ready to do that. Number three, we can probably, ooh, we're running out of time. I'll just introduce number three and I'll get through three A. A decision-making model be versus a disciple-making model. Again, a discipling community. Now, do you know there's a way in which the elders and the shepherds uh, and the official people disciple you, but there's really a way which the, everyone in the community disciples one another. And you need to be committed to that. You need to be committed to being full enough of the truth of God, the wisdom of God, the spirit of God, and so forth. Now, what we have in America today is a kind of thing where uh, developed out of the revivals of Finney and people like that, and Moody and so forth, but it became this mentality called a sinner's prayer mentality. If somebody's made a decision, people say, have you made a decision for Christ? But the Bible never talks like that, doesn't use the phrase personal savior. Jesus said, go make disciples, that is followers of Christ who go take up their cross. They, they, it says they overcame because they loved the, the lamb, the word of their testimony, the blood of the lamb, and they loved not their own selves, soul lives, even to death. Have you died to the kind of music you like? Have you died to your, to your priorities? Have you died to whatever? Have you put every, you have to put everything before God, like I, Abraham with Isaac, all my most precious things. Do you want to kill this Lord or do you want to give it back to me? But you got to let him make that decision if you're going to be a follower. Does that make sense? So I'll, I'll just close by giving us another recap of the sinner's prayer. Most of you know this, and then I'll pick it up in the 1030 meaning there. But here, here's what's wrong with the sinner's prayer today. When it first was started to be used was in the days of George Whitfield and John Wesley, about 20 years before our American War for Independence. And in those days, uh, they had an idea called the conviction room. And what they would do is if you wanted to come pray the sinner's prayer, they would say, I don't think you're under deep enough conviction yet. In other words, I, I don't think you see the depth of your sin yet. You're not really desperate enough for, to, for a rescuer. What we mean by the sinner's prayer is, God, I'm a sinner. Come into my life and make it better. And here's what, uh, you know, heal me and make me whole or whatever. They, it's, you know, you say something like that. Let me break it down for you. First of all, they're saying God to a God who is far less than the God of the Bible. It's one of the reasons I always encourage you, please read at least A.W. Tozer's a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Please read a good book on the attributes of God so you can begin to move toward a God-centered view of, of, of life and, and realize how great he is. Because you need to realize who you've offended. You've offended a, crea a creator, and you say, I haven't offended him. Well, then you're not convicted enough to actually pray the sinner's prayer. See, most people who've prayed the sinner's prayer have not really been converted in any biblical sense. 
And they do statistics on this, by the way. They've proven that that's true in 95% of the case. About one out of 20 people who pray the sinner's prayer actually pray it, kind of knowing some of the basic ideas that, I'm, that are in it. In other words, they pray it because someone helps them pray it, but they don't know what any of what it means. They're not praying to a God who's like, whoa, awesome, holy, eternal. He created me. They're not, when they say I'm a sinner, uh, they don't mean they've offended some perfect, holy, awesome God who's beyond comprehension. They mean I've made a few mistakes. Well, you don't have to be all that insightful to know you've made a few mistakes. <laughs> doesn't take special revelation of, you know, or conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, they mean like, oh, yeah, I thought I was wrong once, but then I realized I was mistaken. <laughs> you know, that's, what, that's kind of what they mean in their heart these days. And, uh, yeah, I've made a few mistakes. Uh, but sin is, you have to, you, Jesus took the rich young ruler, and even though he said he did all of the side of the commandments that have to do with loving our neighbor as ourselves, he, he didn't do the other sides about loving God. So he said, one thing you're lacking, go sell everything you have and come follow me. Wow. In, in other words, uh, if you're really going to understand sin, you need to understand that love and hate, you know, get involved in any marriage counseling situation where there's been a lot of hurt and a lot of grief and a lot of sin against one another for a long time, and you'll discover love and hate are much closer together than love and indifference. Because the anger and so forth that builds up is because there really was some love and some bonding at one time. And it's been all, you know, the, the bank of love has been overdrawn by poor treatment of one another. Love and indifference, if you really don't care about your kids, be indifferent about them. Don't spend much time with them. Don't go taking them to Clifton Gorge on walks and everything else, right? So when they say, uh, I'm a sinner, they kind of mean I've made some mistakes, but you've got, you're really not ready to be converted till you see the depth of it. And actually, I'll just leave us right there because it's, it's really late, and I'll pick up the rest of the sinner's prayer when we come back.